welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today the Mountain West has experienced thousands of avalanches since the start of the year, some of them fatal. We'll speak with the head of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center about the conditions. We're developing weak layers. We're developing structural weaknesses in the snowpack that are going to produce avalanches when we do get snow on them. Then a resident of Moab, Utah, reflects on his participation in the controversial Stanford prison experiment in 1971. They stuck us in cells. There were nine prisoners starting out, three in each cell, and uh, we were told we could only use our numbers, not our names. And as wolves are reintroduced in Colorado, a biologist reflects on the successful reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone. But wolves have become a huge reason that people visit Yellowstone National Park. They've become loved by people all from all over the world, but not without pushback. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Avalanche danger persists across much of the Mountain West with heavy snowfall across the region in January and early February. In January, a backcountry snowboarder died in southwest Colorado and a backcountry skier was killed in Wyoming. I spoke with the head of the organisation that forecasts avalanches in Colorado. Dr. Ethan Green, director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thanks for the invitation. It's uh, great to talk to you. I'd like to start by talking about some of the trends around avalanches. Are we seeing changes in the size of avalanches or indeed the frequency of them occurring? What have you been observing? Well, the, the truth is we don't really know. And that's because the historic record um is not complete the way that we document avalanche activity is essentially by uh driving around and uh and looking and counting and and hiking or skiing up to to avalanche slopes uh collecting um information from the public that that sees avalanches other groups um and so uh there's a strong historical or observational bias in that historic record in that like essentially if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around uh, we don't know about it and and most avalanches happen during big snowstorms um and so there's certain avalanches we don't see because they happen when we can't see visibility and they get covered up uh vast areas of colorado that are just hard to observe um so we count things sort of the same way every year but um we know that that number is not complete So when we look at historical trends and then try to project that into the future, it's really hard to make solid um, assessments of changes in those two parameters, frequency and size. So is there a way then to tell whether or not the changing climate is actually impacting avalanches if if we don't have the data right now? Yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that the changing climate is impacting avalanches. What's harder to say is exactly how. Um, and there's a, a few reasons for that. One is the the records that we just talked about. Um, the other is uh, that uh, snow is just a really delicate material in the in the natural environment that we deal with it. So changes can have pretty big impacts and those changes can 
both increase the avalanche potential and decrease the avalanche potential. And then the other one is um, that the the series of weather events that we have each winter has a huge impact on the avalanche potential. And so we could have a very dry year or a very wet year or a warm year or a cold year, and those could all lead to uh, more or less avalanche uh, avalanches in that year, depending on the, the timing and uh, order that different of weather events come through. Um, so the system is pretty complex. And so again, trying to make like really good predictions about how climate change is going to affect things is and is affecting things is hard. But um, the avalanche cycles are driven by the weather. The weather uh, is affected, uh, and we know a lot about uh, how it's affected by climate change. And so there's definitely an impact. But using it to forecast beyond looking at um, you know, kind of more variability in the types of cycles we're going to see from, from year to year and changes in um, the avalanche potential kind of month to month um, is, is pretty difficult. So what are specific weather events that you at the Colorado Avalanche Information Centre are on maybe higher alert for? I mean, obviously, if there's more snow, there's more risk of avalanches. But I know there's a lot more nuance in there, whether there's a sudden warming up after snow, if there's a freeze after snow. So what are some of those specific weather events that you're really paying attention to? Well, like you said, more snow uh, typically means more avalanches. uh, So we're in tune to that. But also really when that snow comes. So like this year, for example, we've had a very dry year. Um, we have snow on the ground, uh, but it's not very deep. And in Colorado, that means that we're developing weak layers. We're developing structural weaknesses in the snowpack that are going to produce avalanches when we do get snow on them. So we have a very dry year right now, um, but we're going into uh, February. It's February. And if we start getting really heavy snowfall on that existing weak structure, that's going to be a really big problem for us. So Uh, we're really looking at uh, how the winter unfolds each and every year. When we talk about uh, kind of individual events, uh, atmospheric rivers is one that has really uh, gotten onto our radar in a way that it it probably didn't, you know, 20 years ago. When we get these uh, really intense uh, snowfall events, uh, wet, heavy snow, uh, generally kind of warmer temperatures, we have moisture feeds from you know, the uh, the subtropical Pacific uh, kind of into the, the continental United States, those have proven to be uh, pretty big uh, loading events for us. And, and that uh, a lot of water weight, a lot of heavy snow in a short amount of time uh, typically produces big avalanches. Well, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center is now 50 years old. And what you described earlier makes it sound like Avalanche forecasting and how you're gathering that data is still surprisingly low tech. People going out into the physical space to observe what's going on. How have things actually changed, especially with the use of technology in terms of avalanche forecasting over the last five decades? Well, they've changed a lot, but, um, you know, some of the things that we do uh, are refined. But again, like you said, are are still sort of low tech. So um, we do a lot of numerical modeling, which uh, didn't really exist in the way that we do it now uh, at the beginning of the, the Avalanche Center when it formed in the, the early 70s. Uh, we do a lot of data analysis. So even though the data that we have has problems, uh, we still use it and use it uh, every day. You know, when I started doing this type of work, we were mostly storing data on clipboards. Uh, of course, now, you know, we have digital databases and ways of uh 
of sorting through the, the data to answer questions and statistical models. We use data to feed the numerical models, all that sort of thing. Um, we are still going out and digging holes in the snow uh, pretty regularly. And, uh, you know, that the the observations that we make in those holes has changed, but the basic techniques really hasn't changed since, you know, probably the 1930s. Um, so so there's a, an aspect that still is is sort of low tech, although, uh, you know, we're collecting the, those data uh, on phones and pumping them straight into databases uh, but, so we can start using the data before we even return from the field now. So uh, so that mechanism has changed a little bit. So, you know, like a lot of fields out there, especially ones that, um, you know, don't receive billions of dollars of funding every year, um, we've made a lot of progress and I think things uh, have improved and and grown. Uh, in uh, accuracy, effectiveness, and, and sophistication quite a bit uh, during those 50 years. Um, but we still have uh, pretty strong ties to the past. Well, the data that you are collecting through your research around avalanche and avalanche forecasting, is that integrating at all with other data that's been collected around snow? Because we know that so much of that is so valuable in terms of how much snowpack we have can give us an understanding of what kind of water resources will be available in the region. So is there sharing of data? Is there an integration of all of this data around snow that's being collected? Yes, uh, in, in really big ways. Um, and that really goes to just the the data, the digital data aspects of, of what we're doing. Everything is, you know, converted into to digital formats um, if it's not collected that way. And so it makes it really easy to move that stuff around. So, you know, some of the, the data that's being collected to monitor, uh, you know, the amounts of water and runoff and things like that, um, we're collecting every hour and putting it into our models. Um, the the data that we're collecting both at, uh, you know, remote sensing uh, stations and the field data that we collect, uh, you know, goes into databases that that other groups uh, can and do use for modeling um, uh, efforts, uh, longer range forecasting, uh, climate science, uh, all of that information is is shared um, and shared a lot. <laughs> often and uh, and pretty effectively, I think. So just as we finish up, the, the primary impact of avalanches nowadays on humans, really it's around those who are recreating in the backcountry often, or not always the backcountry, but it's on recreationists. So for people who are listening, what is your advice around safety considerations when it comes to avalanches? So the, the real impact on uh, backcountry recreationalists is that's where we see the most fatal accidents. Um, of course, we still see pretty big impacts on other parts of society. We're just, uh, it's a little easier uh, problem to manage. For folks that are going into the backcountry and doing recreation, um, there's sort of three things they need to do. One is get current information on what the conditions are, because what they're going to do is going to be pretty different based on whether we say there's a high avalanche danger or a low avalanche danger. And so you, you need to know that stuff. We're going to give you in these avalanche forecasts that you can see all across the country, um, some information about where the most hazardous areas are, uh, but having some training on how to apply that uh, can be really helpful. So go online. There's lots of good uh, tools online. If you're going to spend uh, time in avalanche terrain, taking a course where you're actually in the field with an instructor is super helpful. And then again, if you're moving into avalanche terrain, uh, make sure that you have uh, proper rescue equipment. That's an avalanche transceiver, uh, a probe pole, and a shovel. 
you need to know how to use those uh, pieces of equipment because your group is going to be your best chance at a good outcome if you get involved in an accident. Dr. Ethan Green is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. Very nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. You can track Avalanche Danger across the region at avalanche.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of non-profit radio stations throughout the Rocky Mountain region, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran. Moab resident Jerry Shu was a prisoner in the famously controversial Stanford Prison Experiment in 1971. And he was recently asked to participate in a National Geographic documentary about the study. Over 50 years later, Shu reflects on the experience and what it was like to see his fellow inmates again. And he spoke with KZMU's Emily Arnston. The study was supposed to simulate a prison. The lead researcher, Philip Zimbardo, wanted to see how people respond to labels in a role-playing scenario. In this case, how would people behave if they were told they were a prisoner or a prison guard? 24 random participants were divided into guards and prisoners for what was supposed to be a two-week study. But violence escalated so quickly between the prisoners and the guards that the study was cut short after just six days. In this segment, we talked to Shu about his experience in the make-believe prison and what it was like to see some of his fellow participants more than 50 years later. Why did you get involved with the experiment? (laughs) I was broke. In 1971, I was hitching across the country and I was looking for a job. And in the Stanford paper, I believe, there was an advertisement for a prison experiment, get paid $15 a day, be housed in this fake prison, which was actually uh, the basement of the psychology building. And the previous, I'm not sure, two, three, four weeks, I had been uh, sleeping on the ground, camped in the rain. I mean, the idea of uh, two weeks paid room and board sounded good to me. (laughs) Room and board as either a guard or a prisoner. And And I was very happy to be a prisoner. I had a stack of books I thought I'd just lay there and read for two weeks. And uh, they took my books away and other people's books away. So, Yeah, I think um, before we get ahead of ourselves, can you start at the beginning and tell me, like, day one, what happened, and go from there? We were picked up by real cops and taken to the police station, fingerprinted, taken blindfolded to the prison, which was the university building. And uh, when we got there, they had every person strip completely, hands up against the wall, and they sprayed us with supposedly de-lousing material. Mm. It was probably deodorant. And they gave us a smock that barely went halfway to your knees and flip-flops and a chain around our ankle and a nylon stocking on our head. So at that point, did you have any regrets? No, $15 a day. Yeah. (laughs) I could handle that. Yeah. They stuck us in cells. There were nine prisoners starting out, three in each cell. And uh, we were told we could only use our numbers, not our names. 
Do you remember your number? Oh, for sure. Five, four, eight, six. And uh, <clears throat> we'd have to come out in the middle of the night and chant our numbers and do jumping jacks and do silly, wasteful, demeaning things just to show who's in charge. Get out here and do 20 jumping jacks for me and count off. One, two, three, four. There were lots of crazy events along the way, scrubbing toilets with our bare hands, mm -hmm. um, being taken to the bathrooms on another floor with our chains rattling and a bag over our heads. And one of the worst things about the whole experience was guys were begging to go home and they weren't allowed to. So finally, one or two guys were released and that just sort of upped the ante for other people who didn't want to be there. And it escalated and uh, prisoners barricaded themselves in their cell. The guards at one point took everybody's smocks away. Prisoners are naked, took their beds away in response to things the prisoners did. All right, so this happened all in six days? Well, we're probably only on day three now. Wow, okay, so you were already stripped naked, your bed was taken away, and it was only day three? Yeah, wow. I mean, the okay. chronology, it's just hard to connect what happened when, et cetera, et cetera, but the overview is what I've been describing. <laughs> In the midst of all the crazy things that went on, a replacement prisoner came in because some prisoners had left. He wasn't there very long at all until he said he wasn't about to play this game. And so he decided he was going to not eat. He was thrown into the closet with his two sausages that he wouldn't eat and said, you can come out of there when you eat your sausages. He didn't eat his sausages. At that point, it was getting ugly. And then they asked us to pound on the door and say something like, whatever his number was, 416 is a bad prisoner or something, and pound on the closet door when he's inside. At that point, there's this line between how much of this is a game, how much of this is real life, and just to keep things stable, I'll go ahead and do it. So he's in there, tension is really high, and... Uh, Dr. Zimbardo's girlfriend happened to see what was going on, and she got very upset and said, how can you do this to these boys? And uh, in his telling, it snapped him out of his role as the superintendent or whatever he was. And the next morning, we were told it was over. He said the experiment clearly showed that good people will do bad things when the situation puts them in that place. The counter to that is a whole point of view. What is demanded of you as opposed to how do you spontaneously react to the situation? We were given roles, and uh, those could very well have been demand characteristics that drove the way it went. Um, one of the guards who became known as John Wayne because of his behavior, said he thought he was trying to do the best he could to represent what they wanted him to be. And boy, he did a great job of it. He had uh, people hating him. I know that there wasn't any physical violence, but what was like the worst thing that happened? There were scuffles. Two guys tried to escape, and I don't know how far they got, but they were found. And they had to be wrestled back in. Guards at another point 
they got a CO2 fire extinguisher and blasted the faces of the guys inside the cell. I mean, toward the end, John Wayne had us playing camels where one prisoner was on their hands and knees and the other prisoner was supposed to come up and hump the camel. And, uh, I mean, nobody said, no, I won't do that. Do you believe that people are made cruel by their environments, like the experiment suggested? Dr. Zimbardo, decades later, he testified in favor of one of the GIs that was involved in the Abu Ghraib fiasco. And he made the case that this was a perfectly nice young man put in a bad situation. While the the easy lesson of this Stanford prison experiment was that good people could go bad in a bad situation is way too simplistic. So you recently went out to L.A. to have kind of a reunion and to do some filming for the documentary that's coming out. Um, What were some of your first impressions of seeing those people? So at this point, we're all in our 70s. Right. And we're all strangers. I don't know if any of us had seen. And so it was not thrilling to see an old friend. They right. weren't old friends, and, you know, our lives went on. How did your memories of the experiment compare to the other people's memories that you saw at this reunion? One of the most fascinating things was I have regretted ever since pounding on that door. Well, it turned out one of the guards, who was actually John Wayne's sidekick, he was thrown in this role, and he was on the same shift as John Wayne. And he said at that point things were so tense And in his frustration, he slammed his baton into the closet door. And he said he has a hard time thinking about it ever since. It brings tears to his eyes that he acted that way. Well, here's a guy who has 50 years of regrets because of his frustration. And I had 50 years of regret at my acquiescence. Moab resident Jerry Hsu, who participated in the controversial Stanford Prison Experiment, in 1971, speaking with KZMU's Emily Einstein. You can see a photo of Shu as prisoner 5486, and you can hear more of that conversation at kzmu.org. And we finish the show with wolves. The first wolves have been reintroduced to Colorado, with more coming later this year. Many people have looked to the Yellowstone Wolf Reintroduction Programme, which dates back to the 1990s, as a model for what could happen in Colorado. Taylor Raby is a researcher with the Yellowstone Wolf Project. She's been observing and studying grey wolves for the last five years. She spoke last month as part of the 2024 Winter Naturalist Nights series in partnership with Aspen Public Radio. So people are attracted to the big sexy megafauna, grizzly bears, mountain lions, wolves, But wolves have become a huge reason that people visit Yellowstone National Park. They've become loved by people from all over the world, but not without pushback. I like to show a comparison between wolves and dogs. Dogs are something we all enjoy spending time with. A lot of us own them, and dogs are just big domesticated wolves. Just like dogs, wolves like to roll around in smelly things. This is a nice grizzly bear poop, uh, and one of our year-old wolves having some fun in it. And because people see their dogs in wolves, it makes them so likable and it helps people relate to them. They're extremely social and charismatic animals. 
Wolves love a good game of tug of war. So these are some puppies from the Lupin Creek pack. They were about seven months old at the time. They had killed a bighorn sheep and they played with this piece of skin for about three months every time they walked by the area. So these behaviors are something that we have the opportunity to observe and share with people from all over the world. This is one of the reasons that people have fallen in love with wolves, myself included. But this hasn't always been the case and wolves still cause extreme controversy. And although wolves are liked a lot better now, some people still hate them. They always have and they probably always will. So in the early 1900s, wolves were eradicated from the western part of the United States. The last Yellowstone wolf was shot and killed in 1926. This was a common occurrence, and the political pool that wolves have on the west is still very prominent, as I'm sure you all know. Wolves were vilified in the media then, and they're still vilified in the media now. Little Red Riding Hood, the three little pigs, Beauty and the Beast, they're trying to eat her dad, right? And Frozen, they're trying to eat them. And so the, the media continues to paint wolves in a very negative light. In 1995 and 1996, Doug Smith, the former lead wolf biologist for that Yellowstone Wolf Project, helped reintroduce the first set of wolves into Yellowstone National Park. From 1995 to 1996, we brought down 31 wolves from Canada and we put them into acclimation pens, which were one acre in size for about 10 weeks. The following year, we brought another 10 wolves down from northwest Montana and put them back into the park as well. People were very angry, and they fought the reintroduction every step of the way. Now, I belong on the team that continues to educate, research, and provide information to the world on wild wolves. The Yellowstone Wolf Project is arguably the most successful carnivore reintroduction program in the entire world. So this just highlights the historic gray wolf range. You can see that in the dark green sage color going all the way over towards the eastern part of the U.S. The current habitat in orange, and this is even a little outdated because we have wolves in Colorado now, and then the potential habitat in that rusty color. The wolves are starting to recolonize the western part of the U.S. and they've expanded um, and they're in places that no one ever thought they would be. Um, when we reintroduced wolves back into Yellowstone in 1995, if you would have asked anyone, would we expect to see wolves in California, they would have laughed, right? And now they're doing well there. No one thought wolves would be as visible as they are in Yellowstone National Park, so it's become very, very useful and easy for us to study these wolves over the last 28 years. Their population stays right around 100 wolves at any given time. You can see that population stabilized right around 2009, um, and that's what the capacity sits at. So what now? Where do we go next, right? Wolves are doing really, really well. They've recolonized most of the western part of the U.S. Wolves were reintroduced here this year, um, something that's exciting. The first wolf that produced puppies in Colorado a few years ago was our wolf, 1084, from the Snake River Pack. Um, we're continuing to learn things every single year, and maybe the next step is to be able to become less invasive, not have to put out so many radio collars, use things like bioacoustics. You just never know. And something that we're trying to look into and discover is could bioacoustics be a new method to use for non-lethal techniques for ranching, um, ranching, right? Is there a way that if there's a pack of six that might be in a ranching area, could you play a bioacoustic howl back of a pack of 20 and would that make them go away? Because in the wild, absolutely it would. And so these are just lots of questions that we're trying to answer over the next however many years. Taylor Raby, a researcher with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, who spoke last month as part of the 2024 Winter Naturalist Nights series in partnership with Aspen Public Radio. 
You've been listening to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Emily Arnston at KZNU in Moab and Aspen Public Radio for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.